A month ago, the military wing of Hamas attacked Israel on October the 7th, killing more than 1,400 people and igniting a brutal conflict. Israel retaliated by a relentless bombing of what it says are Hamas targets in Gaza. But the civilian death toll is now approaching, if not exceeded, 10,000, according to the Hamas-run health ministry. A mass attack by Israeli armoured divisions had been predicted as a response to the October 7th attacks. But instead, it appears to be preparing for a long war that officials say could last up to six months and analysts believe could last up to a year. Israel's generals have, up to now, avoided an operation using multiple divisions to seize northern Gaza, something that would lead to high casualties on both sides. But they have now encircled Gaza City for what appears to be the main assault. One month into the war and Israel is showing no signs of slowing down. Questions remain about how effective its offensive has been and answers differ depending on who you ask. And what, after four weeks of fighting, has been achieved? This is Beyond the Headlines and I'm Thomas Harding and in this episode we're looking at how effective the Israeli offensive has been against Hamas. We speak to Charlotte Leslie, Director of the Conservative Middle East Council and Sam Craney-Evans, military analyst at Rusi Think Tank, and get their views on the Israel-Gaza conflict. What do you think has been, in the round, achieved so far in this war by all sides? Well, I think the first thing to say, and we always have to say this, given what happened on October the 7th, is that horrendous atrocities were committed by Hamas, terror attack, which was absolutely unacceptable. In terms of what's been achieved since, it's difficult to say. You've got now over 9,000 people dead in Gaza. Now that's approaching, I think it's about the same number as Vladimir Putin has killed in Ukraine since the Ukraine war started. This is a huge number of casualties, huge number of civilians, women, children, non-combatants. And it's unclear to what extent that civilian death toll has actually made anyone safer. I think Sam will be able to talk better about the extent to which Hamas targets have actually been taken out. However, the dynamic you've got is that for every time a Hamas infrastructure or Hamas asset is taken out, because of the civilian death toll, you are, in a sense, radicalising a hundred more people. You have a tangible and palpable sense of grief and anger, not only in the region, but also here in London, in the West. And one other thing I think has been achieved, which is not at all positive, is that the West, the West's reaction, however understandable it may be, has isolated us off from the Arab world um, in an unprecedented way, even from those of us who are, are, are those who are allies in a long-standing way. I don't think the effect and the optics, to use, to use a slightly strange word in talking about war, can be underestimated in how it's changed the Middle East and that region's perception, particularly of the UK, which had always been seen as a mature broker. It may have been the right thing to do. I understand Israel has to act. I understand the government has to show that it is strong. But the consequences have been very significant for us in the UK. Thank you, Charlotte. Sam, in terms of what's been achieved from a military perspective so far in four weeks, both from the Hamas perspective and, and from Israel's, and throw it forward and what you think might come next in the, on, the, on the military side. Yeah, I think from a, a Hamas perspective, the 
certainly achieved a level of strategic surprise that I don't think many analysts uh, in Israel or elsewhere really thought was possible. So from a military, purely defense standpoint, it indicates that Hamas over the past kind of nine years or so since 2014 has has professionalized to some degree. And I mean that in the sense of really getting to grips with what it means to face the Israeli defense forces and, 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 and do that in a professional sense. And it has managed to organize itself to the extent that it was able to conduct the attack on the 7th of October. I think it has from again from a Hamas perspective it has galvanized resistance in the Middle East it has galvanized forces that see kind of a western presence as something inherently negative something to be fought against and we can see that in the attacks on US bases now I think there's you know really important context there is that US bases are not strangers to being attacked by drones um, and ballistic missiles even from Iran but in the past it was the red lines were made very clear um, that doing so would come with quite effective retaliation quite swiftly. So the fact that those organisations feel bold enough to step up those attacks says something about the, the way the West is perceived or the way that the US is perceived in the Middle East now. And I don't think we can really disconnect those two. I know that kind of in a lot of the US statements, they're saying this stuff that's happening in Iraq and Syria is separate to what's happening in Israel, but I don't think that that's really the case from the israeli perspective and initially they uh, had to fight really hard to actually quell and, and subdue the initial hamas incursions and 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 get back to the borders of gaza and make sure that there were no insurgents behind them that that was incredibly costly i believe around 300 israeli personnel were killed in that in that entire process from start to finish, which is extensive casualties, which reflects as well sort of the nature of the fighting, the intensity of that fighting. From there, they have conducted a very large build-up, 360,000 reservists. So that's an enormous undertaking, just from a, a logistics perspective. So all of those reservists, they're not sitting at home with rifles and, and bulletproof vests and all the equipment they need to go. A lot of them were in America or just doing regular nine to five jobs. Notionally, they're reservists, but the IDF doesn't keep equipment for them all. So it's had to gather up that equipment, equip them, get them ready to go. And then in terms of the actual offensive, so they've, they've made clear either... It, explicitly through anonymous interviews or implicitly through the content that the IDF is putting out that the the goal is to decapitate Hamas. Um, so it's, it's military leadership is very much in the crosshairs here and that's what they're targeting. I can't get an exact read on how many Hamas commanders have been eliminated since the ground invasion of Gaza started, but there's a, a fairly steady drumbeat of those. So they've kind of cut across the Gaza Strip, isolated Gaza City. And I think that is probably step one in what is likely to be a very long campaign. And I think they will look to sort of systematically eliminate the leadership with the goal to decapitating Hamas and, and reducing the risk in that way. Okay. Thank you, Sam. Charlotte, what do you think Hamas has achieved politically from the attack on October the 7th and the broader politics of, of all of this now in terms of where it might lead 
in the, that we're look, two-state solution is being talked about, but it, it more seriously now than before in some quarters. I mean, that's a very interesting question because it, it's easier in a sense to talk about what Hamas has achieved in, rather than what Israel and the West has achieved in, in, in combating what happened on October the 7th. Hamas have been very effective in driving a wedge not only between Saudi and Israel as there was beginning to be normalization talks, but also between Saudi and the West and the US as there was beginning to be a bit of a rapprochement back to Biden. And this has very firmly put a wedge in between that. I would also say that the West and Israel have responded in just the way I suspect they thought they might, being very unequivocal. And again, this isn't necessarily a criticism. It's very hard to know how to respond to an atrocity like that. But the West certainly has been very blank check to any actions that Israel takes, which is always going to be a risk when you have a controversial prime minister, even in Israel, like Netanyahu, and the people he's surrounded by, and the statements that have been made by the people he was surrounded by prior to this happening. It's quite a risk to align yourself with, with that particular prime minister. and. Inevitably, the West has been distanced from the whole of the Arab world. Equally, because of that binary divide that is being created by the West's reaction as well as the atrocities on October the 7th, there is a greater risk of radiation. Um, people in the Arab world are very angry. They see the West upholding international rule of law very partially, without consistency. The figure that 9,000 people have been killed, Gazans have been killed, the same as the amount of Ukrainians that have been killed, really resonates. And so if you want to stir up your political Islamist roots and radicalise people by the West reaction, that's been quite a win. Equally, it's created space for Russia and China to come in and be the two-state solution broker. Which, again, if you're looking, if you're zooming out and looking at the ongoing NATO and the West versus BRICS dynamic, which is happening, that's been a big win for Russia and China to be able to come in as the brokers. That was a position that the UK used to occupy. And they very effectively pushed the UK out of that. And the UK itself has facilitated that by being very, very one sided. Again, that's not necessarily a criticism. Maybe that was the only thing to do. But that is a consequence of the response that we've had so far. Thanks, Charlotte. Sam, so Charlotte spoke there about the, the high civilian death toll having a, a, a sort of a negative impact on Israel's narrative in, in this war in which it, it needs to stay on top of the information campaign, which seems to be far behind. How does Israel conduct this campaign in terms of military tactics on the ground in order to, from here, to minimise the civilian death toll in in the in, in that it's going to be going to, into if you talk about how they're going to go into tunnels, why they're targeting hospitals, how, how do they try and just keep this purely a military only sort of casualty operation? Kind of moving forward, it seems like they have decided that going down each and every tunnel is not in their best interest. Some of them they are blowing up. But the footage that they've released shows tunnels that are clearly not urban. They're kind of in the rural areas outside of Gaza City. 
But the the other approach seems to be to actually cut off the infrastructure of the tunnel. So when you get that deep underground, you need ventilation, you need energy to run the lighting and that kind of thing, right? Because obviously it's pitch black, you need ventilation to breathe. So if they can cut the ventilation off, then the the Hamas will have to leave the tunnels because they won't be inhabitable. So it seems that that's the approach they're going for. And that there are lots of different types of tunnels. There's the tunnels that are being shown around on Twitter as a, a way to come up behind Israeli tanks and attack them and that kind of thing. And there's the tunnels that they use for their infrastructure, for storing their weapons, for, for living in. And it's those that they're trying to cut off. So in, in answer to your question, it's in that regard, they're, they are minimizing their approach, I think, as much as possible while still trying to actually achieve their goals similarly sort of not so much underground now in in israeli politics charlotte but it seems to have come uh, onto the surface with some fairly substantial disagreements in amongst the, the the war cabinet and what how will that affect do you think the war you've been a member of parliament itself you've been in politics for, for a long time how will that disagreement affect the war, do you think? And and what, what can potentially Israel come up with, do you think, in the future with a, with a potential coalition government to see some sort of resolution to this? So a bit of a two, two-part question there. Well, in a sense, the disagreement hasn't come from nowhere. This hasn't been solely prompted by the atrocities on the 7th. Um, and there are, there are two ways disagreements can go. On the one hand, disagreement can be very constructive. If you have a broadly unified parliament, government organisation, disagreement can enhance decision making. But if you don't, and that dis- disagreement is fairly terminal about basic differences in outlook, it's very difficult to get anything done and get anything together. And I think the issue that they're going to have is that the disagreement isn't only on a political level. There's disagreements, as I understand it, um, amongst the IDF. There's been disagreements about the way security has been done over a period of time. And of course, it's set against the context of the fact this was an intelligence and security failure. You'd had IDF, and again, Sam can talk about this better, but you'd had the IDF redeployed to the West Bank, where the threat was seen to be most acute. There are suggestions that left Gaza and the, and the, the borders unmanned. There was talk that there was new tech and new different capabilities that could ensure that that was still secure even though you had additional personnel in the West Bank. That hasn't seemed to happen. So there's going to be a lot of blame going on and a lot of hindsight happening while people are trying to plan for a future. And the concept of a political solution, a two-state solution, seems very, very distant now. And I think largely it will depend on how the political discussions go within the Israeli government, but also how external actors get themselves together. The policy of supporting Hamas and systematically undermining the Palestinian Authority has paid disastrous dividends for the Israelis. There'll have to be a rethink about that. But it's very difficult to see how any of this will happen because at the moment, the casualty numbers and the videos coming out of Gaza are clouding an awful lot of constructive discussion in the region around because there is just so much trauma about what we're seeing. Thanks. I think a question for, for you both, and Charlotte, if you want to go first, that's fine. Is there a chance of this war ending with neither side winning? I find it very, 
very difficult to predict. I mean, the optimistic view is that this has been an issue that has been building and building and building. And now, as people have been warning, particularly the Jordanians, for really quite some time, that these provocations you've had from violent settlers and provocations on, on the holy sites have now erupted. It was always going to. And now this is being aired. There's a, a, a brutal catharsis and we can begin to recognise that a political solution is needed. You can't sweep the Palestinian question under the carpet, otherwise it explodes. Perhaps this will be the traumatic event that drives us all together and say, as we always do, never again. But there is so much resentment and trauma on both sides with every single set of civilian casualty numbers and every single IDF soldier and every single hostage who isn't rescued. The, the backdrop to this, this, the human backdrop, becomes harder and harder to find any kind of reconciliatory talks. And at the same time, it's very difficult to see how the Palestinians can organise themselves without a, a dynamic, charismatic leader to begin to be a central point for the kind of discussions that are going to need to happen. And equally, the West is now going to find it very difficult to play any kind of constructive brokering role because they're not going to be trusted by the other side. They're now seen as a proxy for Israel, which means that the West's ability to have influences this is diminished. Thank you. And Sam? I think the in a military sense, I, I would be very surprised if the IDF stops before it is able to claim some sort of victory, be that the elimination of a certain number of Hamas senior leaders, tunnel networks and capabilities, that kind of thing. We know from sort of their, their strategic writings and the way that they've conceptualized military operations in the past is it's about militarily bringing periods of stability and peace so that Israel can continue its kind of development, technological, economic, that kind of thing. And I think that it's, from a political perspective, it's translating that into that military victory, if it's achieved, into something long-lasting and something more permanent. I think the probably some of the unknowns is the extent to which the conflict will escalate horizontally. So which other countries will become involved? Um, we've kind of seen the Houthis firing their missiles, which is something of an escalation, but I think they probably feel quite safe a thousand kilometers away from where most things are happening with the Israelis' hands tied up watching Hezbollah and, and, and Gaza and that kind of thing. So it, it does have the potential to, to burn on for quite a long time. And if that happens, I think the the ability to, for either side to claim some sort of definitive success diminishes quite significantly. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Headlines. For more information on what's happening in Israel and Gaza, please subscribe to get every episode of Beyond Headlines, where we explain and analyse the current conflict and follow our coverage at www.thenationalnews.com. This episode was produced by Doa Farid, Phil Green and Arthur Edison. And I'm your host, Thomas Harding. <laughs>